Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 9-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Jalani Tulo and Tami Kuza. In our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Kenya urged not to close Dadaab refugee camp and UN approves arms embargo against Yemen rebel leaders. In economics, IMF cuts growth forecasts for sub-Saharan Africa and in sports news, Zimbabwe Football Association give an ultimatum to pay coaches. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. About 400 migrants have died in an attempt to reach Italy from Libya when the boat when the boat capsized. The boat carrying about 550 migrants in total flipped about 24 hours after leaving the Libyan coast. At least 150 people were rescued. At least nine people have been killed in an attack by Al-Shabaab militants in the Somali capital, Mogadishu. Police say the attackers stormed the Somali Ministry of Higher Education yesterday after a bomber detonated his explosives-laden vehicle at the gate of the complex. Last month, Somali government forces wrested control of the Maka al-Mukarama Hotel in Mogadishu hours after a confrontation with Al-Shabaab gunmen who had stormed the hotel the previous day. Opposition leaders in Guinea have called for a suspension of protests after gunfire erupted in several neighborhoods in the capital, Conakry. Hundreds of supporters clashed with security forces for a second day. The government has denied that security forces opened fire on protesters and has called for talks. Opposition parties called for protests in order to pressure the government to hold local elections ahead of a presidential vote as laid out in a 2013 agreement between Guinea his rival political factions. The government called for talks to ease the tensions, but opposition leader, leader Selao Daliendihalu earlier ruled them out unless the government scrapped the existing election timetable. Zimbabwe's Constitutional Court has upheld the expulsion from Parliament last month of 21 opposition MDC members. This after their party dismissed them following internal squabbling over leadership. Under Zimbabwe's constitution, if a member of parliament joins or forms another political party, the seat is declared vacant and fresh election is called within 90 days. The MDC asked parliament in March to expel former Secretary General and Finance Minister Tindai Beatty and his MDC renewal group for having left the party. The United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR, has voiced deep concern over continuing xenophobic violence in South Africa, especially in the coastal city of Durban. UNHCR staff and partners have been receiving reports from refugees around the country that they fear for their lives. Spokesperson Tina Hilly. 
many of the refugees and asylum seekers have been affected. Many of them have been displaced, and so it's very worrying to us. Since the attacks that happened in Soweto, there's been a question raised as to whether it's xenophobia or whether it's criminality. We have many refugees contacting us and telling us that they, they are basically uh, living in fear. Um, we had one foreign national in the Western Cape t who was a doctor working in a public hospital tell us that even he was afraid to go to work. So it's not just the people who are directly affected by the violence, but there's a genuine fear amongst many of the refugees that they could also be a potential target. And that's the news headlines and 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live on this Wednesday, April the 15th, the 105th day of 2015, with 260 days left in the year. In our top story, the Kenyan government has been urged by the UN refugee agency UNHCR to rethink its decision to close the Dadaab refugee camp in the north of the East African country. Dadaab is home to 350 mainly Somali refugees. The decision to close the camp within three months was made after an attack by alleged Somali militants on Garissa University which led to the deaths of at least 147 people. Daniel Dickinson has been speaking to UNHCR's Karine de Gruel. We are concerned that uh, an abrupt closure of the DAP camps and forcing refugees back to Somalia could have extreme humanitarian and practical consequences. It could also be in breach of international obligation that Kenya has. We've been in contact with the Kenyan authorities and we are urging them to reconsider this matter and we've offered our further support to strengthen law enforcement at the DAAP camps and support other measures that might be needed to protect both refugees and Kenyans against uh, possible uh, incursions. You can understand the position of the Kenyan government, can't you, following uh, what happened in Garissa? We're shocked and appalled by these, these horrific attacks uh, at Garissa University. Having said that, Refugees are victims too. They have been fleeing violence and war in Somalia for years. They need protection too. What is UNHCR doing to root out extremism within the Dadaab camps? We understand the complex regional security situation and there have been incidents of violence in the past. We've been working together with the Kenya to strengthen the presence of law and order in the refugee camps. So if the Kenyan government refuses to rethink its position on the closure of Dadaab, where are those 350,000 refugees going to go? In their announcement, they wish that these refugees return to Somalia. At the same time... Um, that's not possible, is it? We don't think it's possible. Uh, there have been uh, small-scale returns. We also launched a pilot project in December where people voluntarily return, they came to us and they say, yes, we know and we want to go back to uh, these places in Somalia. But there are basically three areas and large parts of South Central. We, we don't consider um, them to be safe yet. Um, so where will or, they go if they can't go back to Somalia? 
that would be a, a big problem. And some of the refugees have come to us and they've asked for, when they heard this, they've asked for resettlement. So that would be a third country who would be willing to take the refugees in. But the numbers are so large, that would be a, a large operation and very difficult to conceive at this moment. Does UNHCR think that there could be knock-on effects from this position? Other governments might decide they no longer want refugee camps in their country. How concerned are you about the bigger picture? We are concerned about the bigger picture, not necessarily because of this, but, but if you look at the, the situation over time, the number of refugees and forcibly displaced people are, have been growing tremendously. We have more than 50 million people uh, who have been either displaced across border or inside the borders of their own country because of war and persecution. Uh, there are so many conflicts and wars going on at this moment, forcing so many people to move that keeping this protection space, this environment for people so that they can flee and ask for protection in another country is still extremely important and is really life-saving. And that... It's 8.09 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. And that report by James Shimanyula, an independent Kenyan political and security expert and ordinary Kenyans have expressed varying views on the looming closure of Dadaab refugee camp in the northeastern part of the country. The camp has been home to an estimated 600,000 Somalis who escaped from their motherland more than 20 years ago. James Shimanyula has more from Nairobi. Sheikh Abdi Samad Abdi Wahab. An independent Kenyan political and security expert says the closure of the Dadaab refugee camp in the second week of July this year will not solve security problems facing Kenya. The closure of the camp is not a solution to contain the Al-Shabaab activities in Kenya. If you look at those who carry out the attack, they are localists. The only thing they can contain Al-Shabaab, they have to recruit the localists into regular police force, let the Somalis be part of the intelligence. They can easily intermingle with society and gather information. They have also to empower the local imams. Those imams need protection from the government. Sheikh Abdi Wahab himself, a Kenyan Somali, said there is still time for Kenyan authorities to reverse their plan to close the double camp. The safety of the refugees is at risk, he said. These people, they flee from their Shabab. They are no longer safe in Somalia. And the Somalia is a fragmented state. Where are they going to take this refugee? To central Somalia? Central Somalia is one of the regions in the country which is under the control of al-Shabaab militants. The Kenyan government says Dadaab has become a recruitment center for al-Shabaab whose gunmen killed 148 people at the country's Garissa University College last week. But while the Kenyan government claims it is acting in the interests of national security, some Kenyans are far from convinced that closing the camp is the right cause of action as I find out while talking to people on the streets of Nairobi. As a Kenyan, as a patriotic Kenyan, the closure of the Adap camp is like committing suicide. Those people who are there they are refugees, not criminals. They bled their country because of the suffering in their homeland. 
So Kenya is a safe haven for people who are undergoing such situations. And the government of Kenya should take precautionary measures before closing that camp. Where was the government by then when the refugees came in the camp of Dadaab? So at this juncture, things have happened of Garissa is when they want to close. I don't see the reason of closing that, taking those refugees back to their home. They should close the camp. The camp is being used by the Al-Shabaab by saying that they are the refugees. On the other hand, they are the enemies of the country. Mm, to some extent, I support it. Because it seems that these people are hiding at the refugee camps before they come to POM. Let them close it meanwhile uh, as they weigh the security situation in Kenya. They should close that uh, dam because of security purposes. Simply when now we allow such people to stay there, Al-Shabaab takes opportunity uh, through that uh, camp. Then they, now they start coming out and uh, intermingled with us. A sampling of public opinion on the streets of Nairobi illustrating the divisions and the challenges the country and government face in the wake of the Garissa massacre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The UN Security Council has passed a draft resolution imposing targeted arms embargo on Houthi rebels in Yemen while demanding the group withdraw forces from territories they've seized. The measures further places a global travel ban and assets freeze on Houthi leaders Abdul Malik al-Houthi and former President Ali Abdullah Saleh's eldest son Ahmed. A draft resolution passed with 14 votes in favor, with Russia abstaining while expressing its reservations on the text. Show and Bryce Peace reports. It was the first council action since a Saudi-led coalition began an air campaign against the Houthi advance in the country. This at the request of Yemen's internationally recognized president, who has since fled the country. The UK is the pen holder on Yemen's resolutions, its ambassador, Sir Mark Lyle Grant. In February, this council made very clear that further measures would be taken if the Houthis failed to cease their intimidation, aggression and expansion. As their actions have shown, the Houthis ignored this warning. The United Kingdom therefore supports the Saudi-led military intervention in Yemen taking place at the request of President Hadi. But ultimately, the solution to this crisis must be a political one. More than 600 people have died since the military escalation and thousands more injured, while the humanitarian crisis for one of the region's poorest countries is being described as catastrophic. The resolution demands that the Secretary General report back within 10 days on its implementation and threatens further listings on individuals who do not comply with the call to halt the violence. In our view... It's not fully in line with those requirements. Which... Russia's ambassador Vitaly Cherkin abstained in the vote, arguing that some of its recommendations, including an arms embargo on all parties, were not included. The resolution makes reference to the need to resume the negotiations between Yemeni sides and expresses support to UN efforts here. 
However, the co-sponsors refused to include the requirements insisted upon by Russia addressed to all sides to the conflict to swiftly halt fire and to begin peace talks. There is inappropriate reference, given the situation in Yemen, to the sanctions aspect in the resolution. We insisted that the arms embargo needs to be comprehensive. It's well known that Yemen is awash in weapons. U.S. Ambassador Samantha Power, whose country supports the Saudi-led coalition, says their actions demonstrate that council will act against those who continue to undermine reconciliation in Yemen. This resolution further recognizes the costs of Yemen's rapidly deteriorating humanitarian conditions. In response, the resolution affirms that all parties must comply with their obligations under international humanitarian law, and it urges all parties to facilitate the delivery of humanitarian assistance to civilians in need. The fighting in Yemen is seen as a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, who both seek greater influence in the region. Yemen's president, Abd Rabu Mansour Hadi, has accused Iran of military support to the Houthis. The UN has urged parties to return to political negotiations under its auspices. I'm Shervin Bricepies in New York. A world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to the year 1947. Jackie Robinson became baseball's first black U.S. Major League player when he debuted with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And that was today in history in the year 1947. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa, Zorka, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. The UN Secretary-General says the world must not forget the over 200 Chibok girls abducted by Boko Haram in northern Nigeria exactly one year ago. The abduction sparked an international outcry and the launch of the Bring Back Our Girls campaign, according to Amnesty International. The terrorist group is responsible for at least 2,000 female abductions in 2014 alone, Actions the UN chief has called abhorrent. Sean Bryce Priest reports on the statement issued by the UN to mark the anniversary. It's a familiar picture now, a video released by the group soon after they had kidnapped the girls. Twelve months later, and the Nigerian government appears no closer to securing their safe release and return. Stefan Dujeric is the Secretary-General spokesperson. Over the past 12 months, Boko Haram intensified its brutal attacks on boys and girls in Nigeria and neighboring countries. Hundreds of thousands of children have been displaced from their homes and deprived of their rights to live and grow up in safety, dignity and peace. Uh, Boko Haram's killings, abduction and recruitment of children, including the use of girls as suicide bombers, is abhorrent. 
With a change in government imminent in Nigeria following elections earlier this month, the actions of incoming President Muhammadu Buhari will be watched eagerly by a global community aghast at the group's actions and perplexed by the struggles encountered by one of Africa's most powerful armies in arresting the situation. The legitimate response to Boko Haram's attacks must be fully consistent with international law and not create additional risks for the protection of children. On this day, I reaffirm my support to the governments and people of the region in the fight against Boko Haram, and I stand in solidarity with the families of all abductees, especially children, their communities, and society at large. The Secretary-General's latest report on sexual violence in armed conflict called the girls' abduction one of the most alarming episodes of 2014, accusing the group of imposing forced marriages, enslavement and trafficking. The report reveals that the girls who refuse to marry are faced with violence and death threats. The UN has called for the children of northeastern Nigeria to be left in peace. I also remain deeply concerned by the group's repeated and cowardly attacks targeting schools in grave violations of international humanitarian law. Going to school should not have to be an act of bravery. The children of northeast Nigeria and neighboring countries must be allowed to live in peace and enjoy their right to a safe education. Negotiations on a UN Security Council draft resolution backing a multinational regional force have stalled over concerns by Nigeria that the text would be under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, meaning decisions could be enforced with economic sanctions or external military action. The draft would have established a UN trust fund to finance operations of the already active regional force. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. It's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 2000. The first victim of the land invasions in Zimbabwe, David Stevens, is murdered. Stevens was shot to death, was shot to death by squatters occupying his land. He was the first white farmer to be killed in the ongoing land confrontations involving so-called war veterans backed by President Robert Mugabe's ruling ZANU-PF party. Joseph Winter tells us more. Five white farmers were abducted in Marewa to the east of Harare. One man, Dave Stevens, was shot dead, while the other four were severely beaten with iron bars and lumps of rock. Mr. Stevens was apparently known to be an MDC supporter. Richard Amiot from the Commercial Farmers Union told me that Mr. Stevens' farm had since been looted. Again, it is reported that the police took no action to save his life. At one point, he was in Marewa police station when war veterans marched in with a gun before they took him away and shot him. The news of these deaths did not stop Robert Mugabe from calling the farm invasions peaceful demonstrations. And that was Joseph Winter reporting from Harare on this day in 2000. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Research shows that every 25 seconds a woman or girl is raped in South Africa and every six days a woman is murdered by her intimate partner. Based on these statistics, non-governmental organization 1000 Women Trust is calling on South Africans to stand together and fight gender-based violence. Since 2004, the organization has been mobilizing 1,000 women to unite against domestic violence in the coastal city of Cape Town. Next month, the organization will host an event and mobilize resources to provide access to skills, leadership and provide seed funding to women-led organizations. For more on this, Komutsu Mopulane spoke to Tina Tiat from 1,000 Women Trust. In 2003, Wendy Ackerman from Pay and myself, Tina Tiat, we came together and we decided to mobilize 1,000 women in one room and create safe space where we can address the issues of domestic violence. Immediately after that, we had 25 women who joined us and that 25 women and ourselves formed the court core of putting a, this initiative together. It's been going now for 11 years. And our whole idea is to create a safe space where we as women can actually do something about violence, even if it is just to speak out. What do you make of such shocking statistics? I mean, we hear that every 25 seconds a woman or a girl has been raped in the country. What do you make of this? Yes, and what's terrible to us is exactly that even 40% of all rapes these days are children. And, and that's very disturbing. And we feel we as women should speak out. We feel that we could actually change by starting with our families and our own circles and really address how, the way how we look at domestic violence, rape, and abuse in our communities. We've also started in, uh, engaging with men, and you will find that we always have a few good men who stand up, who fund initiatives, and who actually come forward to support the Thousand Women Initiative. What is it uh, that we're not doing right to address gender-based violence? For me, I think we need more leaders, leaders to speak out. And I believe that we need to empower police, social workers and communities to actually step up what we do. But I think more important is that every single family should take a stance about domestic violence and abuse. We start talking about or just put a stamp of non-approval on it. Say no to it. When you hear people making silly remarks about abuse, about rape, about women's role in society, we should just stop. We should just say, no, I don't accept that. I think every single person can play a role in South Africa. But would you say that progress has been made over the years on the African continent? You know, for me, I'm very impressed. I've seen in the last few weeks women in Kenya, women in the DRC, young girls, young girls on the African continent standing up and taking a stance. So I'm really very impressed with it. And I know that if we as women speak out in Uganda, women actually did far more than speak out. And I know in South Africa there are lots of groups who are working to get the whole issue of gender-based violence on the agenda. But really it's time now that we also have some of our leaders, some of our political leaders, some of our economic leaders, and our church leaders to take up the role again to speak out and condemn violence. And it's violence at all. It's violence in school. It's violence in the home. 
amidst violence in the workplace. And finally, Tina, is there a way that, you know, willing volunteers can get involved in the 1,000 Women United Against Domestic Violence initiative? Yes, there are lots of ways. You know, you can mobilize your company, you can mobilize your employer to get involved. If you are at any stage, cannot get to the event, you can find somebody else to attend the event, or you can donate to, to make sure that we give grants to women at grassroots level who form support groups. That was Tina Tiat, spokesperson for women for South African NGO 1000 Women Trust, speaking to Khomotso Mopulane. The debate over apartheid and colonial statues continues to generate mixed emotions in South Africa, and government has sent out a strong warning against those who vandalize or destroy statues. Our parliamentary correspondent, Mercedes Percent, went to seek the views of people on the streets of Cape Town and compiled this report. Calls for the removal of colonial and apartheid statues were sparked by the so-called Roads Must Fall campaign at the University of Cape Town. The protest is now seen countrywide, led by the economic freedom fighters. EFF spokesperson Mbuise Nindlozi says no amount of arrest or political debates would resolve the current statue removal protest. He believes the only solution is for government to set a date for the removal of all the apartheid and colonial statues. It's not going to assist for us to keep arresting people who are protesting against what is obviously via a serious violence to our psychology and symbolism as a post-apartheid society. Government should announce dates and time when they are going to remove these statues across the country and then these, uh, these protests uh, will, will stop. But uh, as long as they are not doing that, they are not taking leadership to remove these statues, then it's uh, rational to expect that there will be more protests. I mean, Queen Victoria's statue, uh, they are suspecting the Koi and the Sen groups. You're still going to arrest more people for doing what is obviously something you can lead by announcing date and time. However, government's Justice Crime Prevention and Security Cluster has sent out a stern warning against those who vandalize and destroy statues. Leading the cluster media briefing in Parliament yesterday, Defence and Military Veterans Minister Nosiviwe Mapisa Ngakula said it's illegal and criminal. These actions of vandalism are contrary <coughs> to the principles of the Constitution and also constitute a criminal act. Government is aware of the sentiments in the country relating to our racist and colonial past. We do understand and appreciate the frustration from sections of our society who may feel the program of building new heritage architecture is moving slowly. But it must be emphasized that much as we understand these frustrations, there are processes that need to be followed. But what's the view of some of the people we spoke to outside Parliament? Craig Abrams from Mitchell's Plain owns a stall where he is selling fruit at the back of Parliament. The statues of Queen Victoria located at the back of the NCOP building inside Parliament and the one of General Jan Smarts next to the slave lodge are clearly visible. Abrams believes that the removal of the two statues will have a negative impact on tourism and his business. I see 600-700 people a day here. Every day walking past my stand and they always take photos of the statues. Leave it there for them, for their sake, because that is, at the end of the day, that is why the tourists come to Cape Town to experience these type of things. If the statues go and then what? What are the tourists going to do? Take photos of the birds? I don't think so. 
We caught up with 71-year-old Frank Edwards and his friend Paul Fredericks, who refer to themselves as Khoisans. They say they want the Jan van Riebeck statue to fall. And you know this Jan van Riebeck? He killed my forefathers. They were killing our people. They took everything from our poor people. Now we colored people are the poorest of the poorest of the poorest here. That statue must come down. That must come down. That must Jan van Riebeck. He's a coward. He came here first before other people here in this country. And we are the original people from this country. And those were some of the views of young people in South Africa who spoke to Mercedes Besant about the removal and vandalism of apartheid and colonial statues. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. About 400 migrants have died in an attempt to reach Italy from Libya when their boat capsized. The Nelson Mandela and Ahmed Kathrada Foundations urge South Africans to eradicate xenophobia and new documents from in-camera hearings from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission will be released today by the South African History Archive. Those are the stories making headlines. It's 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The International Organization for Migration, IOM, organized its first charter flight this past Sunday to evacuate 141 third country nationals from Sana'a in Yemen. The operation was a success and paves the way for continuing the evacuations of more than 16,000 migrants who are stranded in the war-torn country. The IOM has received requests from 38 countries to safely evacuate their nationals out of Yemen. IOM spokesperson Itai Viriri joins us on the line to tell us more about the recent operation. Good morning, Itai, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. Thank you very much for having me on the program. Now, Itai, on Sunday, the IOM organized its first charter flight um, to evacuate more than 100 third country nationals. How did this operation go? We're very pleased to say that it was uh, a success. Uh, in total, 148 uh, nationals from countries uh, as diverse as Albania, Bangladesh, Canada, Egypt, Ethiopia, Germany, Netherlands, Sudan, Tunisia, and the UK uh, were able to 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 leave Sana and they were sent to Khartoum, Sudan, from where the IOM then provided further flights to their countries of origin. So this was the first one on Sunday, and then we are happy to say that we also had a second uh, flight out of uh, Sana on Tuesday, uh, in which. Uh, Another 140, uh, 48 uh, passengers were able to be evacuated. So, so far uh, on Sunday we have uh, close to 300 people evacuated so far and we're hoping to have another charter flight hopefully tomorrow from Sana to Addis Ababa. Now, Itai, I understand that the flight required multiple and complex approvals and logistical arrangements. Can you tell us more about the challenges that the organization had to deal with? 
Absolutely. I mean, as you can imagine, the uh, situation in, in, in Yemen is quite volatile in terms of um, the, the, the fighting that's going on there, but also with the intervention of uh, other, other regional regional forces. So it means that whenever we have to uh, arrange these evacuation flights, we have to coordinate with a number of countries. So, for example, the, 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 the coalition... Uh, uh, which is fighting against the, the, the Houthis, you know, we have to, to, to ensure that uh, there's a safe uh, passage uh, and, and, and ensure that people can fly out safely. So it really has taken uh, quite a while for this to actually happen, but we're hoping now that we have these arrangements in place, we should be able to, to get as many flights out as possible. The challenge really is for us to to make sure that of the 16,000 um, and dead country nationals were stranded in Yemen, of which 5,000 are immediately ready to, 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 to leave, we would want to make sure that they are evacuated as soon as possible. And as you can see, that's quite a large number to, 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 to go through. Now, can you just uh, give us a, a, a sort of a... a What's the right word? Some, uh, well, we know that uh, some of the evacuees had been waiting at the airport for some time, for a couple of days before um, trying to get out of Sana'a in Yemen. Um, You know, for you to be able to organize the flight, get through the the red tape and, uh, you know, get those people on the flight. How did this process happen? And with regards to the people who were waiting at the airport, how did you, how were they identified and what is the procedure thereafter? Well, in, in many cases, what happens when we have these situations, and not just in Yemen, but in other countries, in Iraq or, or, or in Libya recently, the national governments of uh, where, the, where the people where the people are from uh, usually contact us, and then we are sort of given a list of names. Obviously, some of them are contact us directly because they they know that the IOM is the organization that is mostly identified with this kind of uh, evacuations. But in, in this case, I must say we, we, we have to pay a particular and special tribute to the governments of Sudan and Ethiopia who have arranged uh, what we can call really evacuation corridors whereby we can evacuate people from, from Yemen straight to Khartoum or to Addis Ababa. And this certainly has helped a great deal in ensuring that we are then able to uh, assist them further beyond those two, those, two, those two locations. Because what happens is that when we do the evacuation, we just don't take the people out of the danger zone. We actually... Uh, take them all the way to their countries of origin. But in this case, as I said, I mean, we're really are grateful to, 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 to those two countries. And I think uh, without them, I think this would even be more complicated than it is already. Uh, and yes, I should also say that we uh, do have a hotline, uh, uh, which is a Cairo, uh, a couple of Cairo numbers. Uh, we have a big um, regional office in Cairo. And maybe I can uh, read out the numbers now, if that's okay. You can go ahead and read them. Hello. Hi. Uh, it, yes, you can go ahead and give them through to uh, get them through to our listeners. Perfect. So we have two numbers. Uh, so we have the first one zero zero two zero two zero two one five three six one two eight. As so, I'll do, say that again. Zero zero two zero two zero two one five three six one two eight. And the second one is zero zero two zero one. Zero two one five three six one eight eight zero zero two zero one zero two one five three six one eight eight. So they can call this number and uh, basically people who 
have requests for evacuation or want to follow up and find out more about the loved ones who are still in, in, in Yemen can get now, through that number. And it's, it is a function, those are functioning numbers. Okay. Now, Itai, can you just tell us uh, what exactly then happens to migrants who remain trapped in Yemen, who are not able to get through to the airport or get through to the place for the evacuation? How does the well, IOM we, assist them? Well, we, we we still have a team in in Yemen, uh, quite quite a big team. Obviously, they're quite constrained in how they're doing, uh, carrying out their work or doing their work there. But we still have people who can assist those who still remain um, uh, in Yemen. But really, the the challenge now uh, and the numbers that we have is that of those sixteen thousand that are in the country, five thousand have made it to, to us that they are ready to travel at any at any moment. And those are the ones that we we are really trying as much as possible to, 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 to assist and, and get them out of Sana or, or other parts of Yemen. But the rest, as I say, will continue to receive whatever support IOM normally provides in these kinds of situations. Um, and I think besides IOM, I think I'm sure there are other uh, agencies that are also providing round-the-clock support for them. So uh, hopefully uh, all of them, if not all of them, but the majority of them will find, uh, will find some support whilst they're still inside Yemen. But the idea for us as IOM is to make sure that everyone who wants to be evacuated is evacuated and evacuated on time and safely. Itai, and finally, when is the next planned evacuation? We hope to have one uh, tomorrow, uh, that's uh, on the 16th. Uh, and we this one will be to, uh, to start from Sana to Addis Ababa. Because uh, the first one, as I said, was to Sudan, so I think we'll be alternating whichever is uh, the most uh, preferable or reliable destination. We will uh, alternate between those two, and obviously, if other other avenues open up, we will make sure that we use those two. So just to reiterate, the, uh, the, the, the plan is to have another evacuation tomorrow. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Itai, for joining us, and all the best. That was Itai Viriri, spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration, on the line from Geneva in Switzerland. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revetwa. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil élevé. Weya wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonan. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibanj. Africa, Ayanyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.42 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now the lethal link between unsafe cars and tens of thousands of deaths every year on the world's roads came under the United Nations spotlight yesterday. In a call to manufacturers to apply agreed UN safety standards, the Economic Commission for Europe warned that millions of new cars sold in middle and low-income countries fall short of current regulations. UNECE Chief Christian Friebach says it is unacceptable that cars sold in poorer countries are deliberately less safe than those in developed nations. UN Radio's Daniel Johnson has more. 
Every year, well over a million people die on the world's highways, and road accidents are among the leading causes of death globally. A staggering 92% of fatalities happen in low- and middle-income countries, according to the UN's Economic Commission for Europe. That's partly because cars in poorer countries simply aren't built to the same safety standards as richer nations, and that means that when there's an accident, some cars in places like Latin America are almost certain death traps. Parked outside the UN in Geneva are the remains of two small cars that have been used for a relatively low-speed crash test. They're both total write-offs, but the car that was built in Europe would have saved the driver's life. The one made in Latin America wouldn't. David Ward is from the Global New Car Assessment Program, which, together with the UN Economic Commission for Europe, wants all cars to meet basic safety standards. In technical terms, the higher a car's star rating, the safer it is. The results are very, very different. The five-star car is entirely survivable crash. It has airbags, and the basic body shell has held up very well in the crash. The next car is a zero-star car. It fails to meet the basic UN crash test. You can see how the door is all broken open. The roof has collapsed. The steering column has moved all the way back into where the driver is sitting. The car actually isn't fitted with an airbag, and in fact, there's no point in fitting with an airbag because you're already dead. By 2020, the aim is that all new cars have basic safety protection, with crumple zones and airbags fitted as standard. But there's something else that could save lives too: automatic braking. In a simulated exercise at the UN, Global NCAP's David Ward tries to crash his Volvo into the back of another car. He doesn't get very far. Oh, right. So we accelerated to about 25, 30 kilometers an hour, and then, with no help from the driver, we braked automatically. How was that? Well, it's very impressive. Without thinking about it, I could have been distracted by all these cameras and people not noticing at all. This car suddenly stops in front of me, and without me having to do anything. Although I would have been alerted to the beeping and the flashing, but fundamentally the car took over at the end and avoided a crash. Clearly, the technology is a lifesaver, but it could be decades before it's a global industry standard. UNECE partner Global NCAP says that's not good enough, since 50% of all cars are now produced in middle-income countries. That's going to create a huge road safety challenge in coming years, it says. So governments need to embrace the latest industry innovations now if they want to save lives. That report by UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. It's 8:45 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Controversial alluvial di- diamond mines in Marange in eastern Zimbabwe, most of which have stopped or greatly reduced operations, will be merged into one company. All chief executives and 60 board members of the seven firms now operating there will lose their jobs before month end. Mbada Zimbabwe was the most successful of the diamond companies forged during the brief and turbulent history of all these alluvial fields. Mbada succeeded through its contacts with the ruling ZANU-PF leaders, or but one of the companies are. Operating in the Marange area, were in joint ventures with the Zimbabwe government. The seventh was wholly owned by the government, but has failed to produce rough stones for the last few years. 
Striking construction workers at Midupi Power Station in South Africa's Limpopo province have rejected ESCOM's offer to reinstate them until they pay their bonuses. Thousands of workers are due to return to report for duty today. The workers downed tools last week in solidarity with 1,700 who were dismissed last month for taking part in an illegal march. The workers are demanding that the dismissed workers be reinstated unconditionally, Jablani Baloi reports. The workers are digging in their heads saying that they want to be paid bonuses before they return to work. NUMSA organizer Mathodi Modika says they will continue talking to the employers. The power utility has come and the construction companies have however agreed to reinstate dismissed workers without conditions while the issue of bonuses is being looked into. The employers have given the workers until the 27th of this month to consider the agreement. The International Monetary Fund has highlighted an increasing divergence in the growth paths of major economies this year. This as a pickup in the Eurozone and India was offset by diminished prospects in other key emerging markets. The IMF yesterday kept its global growth forecasts of 3.5% unchanged, but warned that economic recovery remained moderate and uneven, beset by risks like geopolitical tensions and financial volatility. For 2016, the IMF expects global gross domestic profit product rather to expand 3.8 percent up from 3.7 percent forecast in January the headline figures reflect the IMF's growing concern about key developing countries including Russia Brazil and South Africa Africa's largest lender by value, First Rank, has hired four banks to help it arrange meetings with, fist, with fixed income investors from Germany to Hong Kong as it plans to sell dollar bonds. Bank of American Merrill Lynch, Rand, Mer- Rand Merchant Bank, BNP Baripas and Standard Chartered will set up meetings in 10 cities starting on Friday. Two teams from First Rand will visit countries including Amsterdam, Frankfurt, London, Geneva, Doha, Dubai and Singapore. The company may sell senior unsecured dollar bonds following the presentations first rand last sold dollar debt in 2013 China's top diplomat in Brussels has warned the European Union not to disca- disregard rather changes in global trade rules set to favor Beijing. European companies fear the trade rules will open the block to a flood of cheap Chinese goods. World trading powers, including Europe, are in a bid and a bind over how to interpret World Trade Organization protocol that treats China as more of a market-based economy from late 2016, a status that will make it harder for the EU to protect local industry. The decision will shape Sino-EU relations for years to come, either soaring ties or potentially building goodwill as China opens up its markets. The issue is likely to be at the center of the EU-China summit that will take place in Brussels in June. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 12.07 South African rands, at 9.82 Botswana Pula and at 7.16 Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.68 to the British pound and at 0.94 to the euro. On the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,190 and platinum at $1,146 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $58.95 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Jalani. Our sports update up next with Jalani Tulo.
Than Tommy Kluza, a new, new name. Jalani Tulu. <laughs> it's actually a sports update with Tommy Kluza. Thanks for joining us. Let's start with soccer, where the Zimbabwean Football Association, ZIFA, is hinted is still making frantic efforts to engage the lawyers of former Warriors coach Valinos on his long-standing debt so that they can iron out the sticking issues of interest that have accrued to date. Last month, the World Football Governing Body FIFA suspended Zimbabwe from the draw for the 2018 World Cup following the association's failure to service a debt of US$67,000 owed to the Brazilian coach. ZIFA is also owing their ex-national men's squad coach Ian Koroa US$100,000 in an unpaid salary for eight months. ZIFA Chief Executive Jonathan Mashinga yesterday said that they are hopeful of reaching a settlement. In local football, Kaiser Chiefs have put one hand on the Premiership Trophy as they secured a 1-0 win over University of Pretoria at the Tark Stadium last night. They have now collected 60 points after 26 matches played. Chiefs assistant coach Dr. Kumalo admits that they struggled to adapt to the small pitch in the first half and needed something special to win this encounter. When you talk about um, winning a game, it's not all about whether you tactical sound or whatsoever, but uh, we're talking about a dead ball situation that can give you the league. And this is what the boys did. They played as a team, but an individual made a difference. So I thought Shaba made a difference. And uh, yes, of course, he might not have uh, the best of the game, but uh, having have a, a dead ball situation, so I thought he, he delivered very well. Meanwhile, University of Pretoria head coach Sammy Trotten feels that the lack of discipline in their game cost them points in this game. Performance-wise, I was happy with the lads and thought, thought we deserved a result, but maybe not taking our chances, not taking shots at goal when we had opportunities. And then the biggest factor, I think, the, the discipline cost of. Second place to Mamelodi Sundowns will host unpredictable Bloemfontein Celtic at the Lucas Moripa Stadium this evening. Other matches today, Pumalanga Black Aces will be up against Marisbeck United at the Mbombela Stadium, Chippa United Morocco Swallows at half past seven at the Nelson Mandela Bay Stadium, Amazulu will play against Pulukwane City at the Princess Magogo Stadium, Platinum Stars against Supersport United. That match will kick off at half past seven Central African time at the Royal Bafu King Stadium. In the other match yesterday, Orlando Pirates lost their first match 2-0 to Bidvest Vets at the Bidvest Stadium last night. Vets coach Kevin Hunt, who has been preaching about the prospect of finishing second in the league for a chance to compete in Africa, has hypothetically dismissed the idea. If you look at the players in the grandstand, I mean, we've got a decent side there. So it's important for us just to try and finish off now five games. And after Saturday, then we've got a bit of a break and we can try and recuperate a little bit, you know. Meanwhile, his disappointed counterpart, Pirates coach Eric Twinkler, says that the early goal caught them off. Could have been a different different result, you know, considering the amount of chances we had in the second half. So happy with the response from the players in the second half, but not so so happy with performance in the first. And now in the cricket, Cricket South Africa CSA Chief Executive Heron Lockhart has thanked and paid tribute to the Proteus bowling coach Alan Donald for his valuable guidance and contribution made to the national players over the past four years. This appreciation was expressed after Donald confirmed his decision to step down from his role within the Proteus team management. Donald was appointed in June 2011 as part of Kirkestin's management team and continued in the role under Russell Domingo from August 2013. Proteus head coach Russell Domingo has also thanked Donald for his contribution in the, tr- in the protest environment. Cricket South Africa will consider a replacement in due course. 
The next assignment for the protests is the tour to Bangladesh, which consists of two test matches, three ODIs, which is one-day internationals, and two 2020s in July. And finally, lots of big names have been on court on day three of the Monte Carlo Rolex Masters. Catherine Whitaker brings us to date with all of yesterday's action. It was a good day for the stars of the ATP World Tour on Tuesday, with all eight of the top seeds in action booking their places in the next round. Top seed Novak Djokovic got his campaign underway with a straight sets victory over Spain's Albert Ramos Vinolas. Also advancing to round three was 2011 runner-up David Ferrer. He benefited from the second set retirement of his opponent Victor Estrella Burgos. A good day too for the French contingent with Songa, Monfils, Simon, Chardy and wildcard Luis Puy all winning through. Puy now faces the challenge of King of Clay, Rafael Nadal, while Chardy will take on last year's beaten finalist Roger Federer. Also headlining Wednesday's lineup is defending champion Stan Vavrinka. He- That's the end of our sport and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine. Kenya urged not to close Dadaab refugee camp and UN approves arms embargo against Yemen rebel leaders. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Selina Dobong, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Baba Mal with the track titled Jam Lili. Yeah.